welcome everyone to episode 233 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode, we are going on a surreal odyssey through Ari Aster's Disturbed Mind with a review of his latest feature, Bo is Afraid. Before we get to that, however, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing? Are you afraid or are you recovered? Uh, I'm fine. Uh, it was, it's definitely an experience. We'll talk about, uh, the, the experience and whether or not it made either one of us afraid, I guess it's certainly nightmarish in its own way, but, um, but no, I'm good. I have been consuming some content, um, finished up poker face, the Peacock original series from Ryan Johnson. Enjoyed it. Uh, not, not, you know, five star, or even four and a half star material for me. Uh, just because it's a little hit and miss based on the nature of the show, but um, enjoyed it. And then also on Peacock, I'm just I'm, I'm wearing out your streaming service here, Scott. But um, watched Cocaine Bear. Not for yeah, me. I saw your review uh, of that. Did yeah. not did not enjoy that one. Um, I, it's just kind of bizarre to me that that's the movie that they chose to make out of this this setup and this story uh, because it's just it's it's barely any fun at all. Not near. It did not thread the tonal needle. Uh, in the way that I was hoping for and um, focused way too much on a bunch of human characters that I really did not care about a single one of them. So uh, that, that was yeah. tough. I'm glad I didn't, didn't waste my time going to see it in theaters. I will say that the experience was better with a crowded Chinese theater in sure. Los Angeles when I watched it in opening weekend when it came out. Um, but at the same time, I understand where you're coming. It's kind of the movie where maybe it's because you didn't waste your time going to see it in theaters. At the same time, you probably would have enjoyed it more had you seen it in a crowded sure. theater. So sure. it's like the double-edged sword. But yeah, no, it's uh, it, there were some there were some capital C choices made to uh, try to get you to care about some human characters. Although Margaret Martindale, I mean, come on, that was she was a hoot. Uh, now yeah. I will say, friends of the pod, uh, Paul and Zach Ford were not a fan of her work in the film, but I was like, that was. <laughs> One of the one of the more enjoyable parts to me, at least she was really leaning in when everyone else was taking it a little too seriously, in my opinion. I mean, the whole thing's really stupid. So yeah. I don't. Yeah, I mean, sure. I don't know. It's hard to be mad about. There could have been a good agree. version of the movie. made. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. But this was not it. Yeah, I think that's probably Elizabeth Banks maybe just needs to not direct. But I I am going to eventually watch the Charlie's Angels that she made, but uh, don't have high hopes for that. Yeah. I don't know if she has anything else announced at this point, but I did, I do remember reading some like interviews of her saying this was like her voicing how this might be her last chance to like get a movie right to, <laughs> to direct. Well, and, um, you know, I, I enjoyed the film more than, more than you did. I, I did particularly guffaw at the, the ending of Ray Liotta in the, in this film. Sure. Um, I'm not sure she she won herself too many favors, but maybe if she stays in the gr- good graces of Universal, then she can uh, they can throw her a, a script or two. I, well, that's that's your company there. So if it happens and it's another disaster, then I'll just blame you. Sure, yeah, blame me for sure. Um, maybe maybe by then I'll have any say in the in the filmmaking matters of Universal. Yeah, yeah exactly. Until then, I know you're I know you're moving up. Stay, yeah, stay tuned. Stay tuned. Well, surprisingly, after our review of Cocaine Bear, there, I think we can just change the subject of this episode and call it a day. Or what do you think? Or should we go? Should we go on this journey together? I guess we should, Scott. We both took it. It was a long journey. Uh, it would probably be uh, disappointing if we didn't get the chance to discuss. Fair enough. Well, as previously mentioned, this week's topic of conversation is the epic horror tragic comedy 
Bo is Afraid, written and directed by Ari Aster of Hereditary and Midsommar fame. Bo is Afraid tells the story of Joaquin Phoenix's Bo Wasserman, who is the son of a famous and wealthy businesswoman, Mona Wasserman. Late middle-aged Bo is an extremely anxious individual and now lives alone in a crime-ridden city. On the eve of a flight back home to visit his mother, an annual tradition for the anniversary of his father's death, Bo must endure a sleepless night with a noisy neighbor pounding on his wall. Due to the resulting exhaustion, he sleeps through his alarm and has only a short amount of time to make it to the airport. As you can imagine, the circumstances only worsen for Bo, however, after he hastily pick, packs for his trip, ready to leave for the airport, and presumably then finds that the same neighbor has stolen his suitcase and apartment keys. At a loss over how to proceed without his apartment keys, Bo calls his mother, who is dismissive of him, and abruptly hangs up the phone, sending Bo spiraling. The preceding events track Bo in an increasingly downward and outrageous spiral that causes him, and maybe the audience as well, to question their own sanity. Scott, did Ari Aster's much-vaunted 180-minute return to the big screen after four years live up to the hype for you? Or like some critics, do you think Aster and A24 must pay for what they've done in creating such an offensively weird and boring movie? Even if I thought the movie was bad, Scott, which I do not, um, I would never say such an asinine thing yeah. as that the studio needs to answer for this. It, yeah. it almost, somebody I think put it in their review, maybe it was Adam Name, maybe it was Charles Vermesco, I don't remember, but they were saying like, it it evokes the last scene actually of this movie of Bo is Afraid, which is like this, you know, sort of show trial in the vein of defending your life. Um, it seems like there's some, some people who want A24 execs. A24, of course, the company just coming off a Best Picture win for, uh, you know, huge crowd-pleasing sentimental favorite film to answer for giving a filmmaker with a good track record thus far, you know, a little bit more creative license than perhaps he's been allowed in the past. But honestly, I think Ari Aster has been allowed to make the films that he's wanted to make um, at, you know, with all three of his features thus far. And a24 and him are obviously good partners but anyway scott um you know yeah this obviously people will know i'm a fan of ari aster's work um this movie back when it was called disappointment boulevard was my number three most anticipated of last year um i really liked hereditary when i saw that in theaters i loved midsommar you know it was my second favorite film of the stacked year that was 2019 behind only little women and that was just one of those theater experiences that, you know, I just came out, like kind of staggered to my car afterwards and was like, wow, like that's not one I'm ever going to forget. Um, but uh, so I was obviously I was looking forward to this movie. I had a slight bit of trepidation just hearing about some of the stuff along the way. You know, it's going to be a comedy, right? Not my favorite genre. Um, was interested to see how, you know, Astor would be able to thread that needle. Also the three hour thing, right? And, you know, people early on saying this is, you know, this is kind of inscrutable with some of the early takes. Obviously it evokes a recent example of a film that, you know, where the director was allowed to do whatever they want. That was also three hours Babylon, which we were not fans of. Um, and so I was slightly worried that, hey, is this going to be the point where he kind of gets up his own ass um, and you know, make something that, um, that doesn't work, but, um, 
No, I, I don't think that's the case, Scott. I think this um, this this movie is certainly the most difficult and challenging of Astor's films. And that's saying something, considering that his other two films are Hereditary and Midsommar. But I think I'm on pretty firm footing saying that. Um, it's not necessarily a movie like Midsommar that I'm going to go back and watch a bunch of times. Maybe it's crazy that I did that about Midsommar anyway, but um, but that movie was rewatchable to me. Um, I don't know if I can say the same for Bo is Afraid, but I think it is just as well-crafted um, and immersive, certainly, as those other two films, as, as Hereditary and Midsommar. Um, and I enjoyed it i mean enjoyed it um you know maybe isn't quite the the word for this experience i enjoyed the craft of it obviously because it is very well crafted um and i you know i enjoyed the way that he you know it's it's another film sort of about guilt and grief in a way in which you could say the same about those other two movies too like i don't think it's totally way off base from what he's been making previously i do think that this movie, maybe, you know, with Midsommar, you, you can look at it and say, hey, this movie actually had some interesting things to say about, um, like, emotional abuse kind of in relationships about gaslighting. And, and actually, there was, like, a point to it. I think this movie is more of just a visceral experience, right? Like, I don't know. With that being said, you know, I think there are some people out there who are calling this a Jewish film, right? And that perhaps... Jewish people are going to find a way to relate to the, you know, the the situation that our main character finds himself in and his relationship to his mother and all that. I'm not Jewish, so I can't say whether that's accurate or not. But for me, at least, I don't know that there's anything that I take away from this movie. Um, again, I think it's more just about the journey and the way that he's able to put you in the shoes of this care of this character and the experience that he goes through. Um but, you know, again, I can't so I think deny... I think Astor himself did call this film at some point, I think many years ago, a, quote, Jewish Lord of the Rings. So I think it definitely is sort of aimed at a, at a more Jewish audience, or at least there's a higher chance of resonance um, in, in that specific audience, Jewish males, probably mm -hmm. middle-aged males in particular. Sure. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's fair. So, um, you know, I, I guess I have that one caveat about the film, but again, it's another mesmerizing, I mean, it is an odyssey of a film, like, it, it is long, but I was not really bored throughout the film, you know, it, it had, it is sort of divided up in different sections that keep it, you know, fresh and interesting. I think Joaquin Phoenix, you know, he's one of our finest actors, he gives, you know, for better or for worse, a transfixing performance here as this sort of stunted man-child in a way who has just never really been allowed to do anything um by his his mother from you know from the moment he was born which is how the film opens um he's been afraid of his own shadow i mean that's the title is accurate Bo is afraid and we see the different ways that that fear manifests it's it, it you know itself and really the whole movie comes down to i mean maybe this is a mild spoiler but i'm not really revealing any plot details but the whole movie comes down to like a series of situations where if Bo was able to act and not simply to, you know, tower and, or be passive or be afraid, then perhaps things would not have gotten to the nightmarish point that they have. But because this is the way that he is and we're made to understand why, um, you know, he is the way that he is and it has to do with his mother. 
um, you know, then then he's not able to overcome that. But it's a fascinating film. You know, there's definitely a lot of talking points. You know, it it definitely does the is it real? Is it is it not thing? Um, like there are different interpretations, certainly on how much of the events of this movie are actually quote unquote real and how much are, you know, um, imaginary, how much are perhaps orchestrated. Um, you know, all of these questions are being bounced around, but I do think it is one of those movies and Aster would certainly probably say this as well, where there is not a right answer, right? That's the case with a lot of sort of surreal films. Again, David Lynch is known for saying that about some of his more challenging films that there's not a right answer to this. It's more about the viewer's response. Um, and I am okay with that because it's to me, again, the film is so well-crafted and um, immersive that I don't feel like that's a shrug for him saying, well, you figure it out. I don't know what the movie's about. Like, I, I definitely don't feel like that's the case here, but yes, yeah, Scott, another great film from Aster. He's definitely cementing himself as one of our foremost auteurs. And this one, again, it's not going to be for everyone. I mean, you, you know, none of his films are certainly, um, but this one, I think takes, goes an even further step out there, but I, I went with it and um, honestly wasn't turned off by too many moments in this film. Yeah. I, I, I'm curious how this sort of in, con in conglomeration shakes out because I think this film is, is really, um, impenetrable at times. I, I do think that it's quite difficult to connect with. I know I was texting you after I saw this and I was able to see this about a week before you. So you hadn't seen it at the time, but I was texting you about how I feel like the, just the genre people aren't calling this like a surrealist film, but I mean, there seems to be so many surreal elements of the filmmaking, which we can get into. Maybe it is a mix, but I just find sure. those ele elements are ineffective in sort of, capturing emotional impact for me most of the time like i haven't seen a movie well i haven't seen very many surrealist movies in general but the ones that i have seen i've found very ineffective at doing that and i think that's also was my experience watching bo is afraid at the same time i think i see a lot of what you're talking about as well um obviously some of like the outrageous reactions that if you log on to film twitter and, and sort of research and see are crazy like some of the people some of the stories that it's not even really like worth, I feel like even talking about here, but some of the like no. in theater stuff that happened at like early screenings of this movie were ridiculous. <laughs> like I just somewhat, yeah. Someone standing up and saying, if you clap for this, like you're yeah. lying or something like that. Like, or just like no one, better, no one dare clap. Yeah. For this. No like, one better yeah, clap for this. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So obviously that kind of stuff is outrageous. Cause I mean, even though I didn't find it a particularly affecting movie for me personally, Unlike Midsommar, which I found an extremely affecting movie. You know, not my kind of film, generally speaking. An extremely disturbing movie. But something that carried real heavy emotional heft with me at the end of it. For a variety of reasons that, I mean, you can go back and listen to us. Maybe talk about it on our top 10 of 2019 episode. When you had it on your list of your top 10. I think it was in my top 10 as well that year. Because I also gave that film five stars. If it wasn't in my top 10, it was definitely my top 20. I found that movie incredibly effective at what it was trying to do. This one, not so much, but I did see the craft to sort of circle around and put the point. The, the what you're talking about in terms of the filmmaking sort of potential 
and the stylistic choices, you can see that they're there. Whether they work for you or not, I guess, is the, is the end of the day, the question people have to ask themselves. It didn't work for me, but I'm not offended by someone's extremely uh, extreme level of craft not working for me. Um, you know, Babylon, sure, that was another edge case where I saw the craft and a lot of it. But then towards the end, I just felt like the craft almost fell off. I was going to say it has technical craft, but I think the the storytelling is is all over the place. Yeah. And I mean, I think that there are elements of the story that are all over the place in Bo is Afraid, which some of the things we can get into, but something about it, it didn't, I didn't feel totally turned away by it, I guess is, is maybe the way to put it. I was extremely worried going into this movie. I shared with you some of my concerns yeah. <laughs> after the film and some of those, of course, like were, you know, not unfounded for my own personal tastes in film. But I was like, I can't believe I'm about to go watch this 180 minute movie. Like, it seems like it's some sort of like Lynchian type film that's just not going to probably work very well for me. Um, and that, yeah, that's just the fact that it was three hours combined with yeah. all those things made me worried. I, and I think, honestly, the first half of the movie, like, is pretty watchable like it honestly is like the you know the first segment with him in in you know this unnamed city and then yeah the second segment which is when he is at the home of amy ryan and nathan lane i think yeah. those are those th that is kind of before i mean there are things that are strange that are happening obviously but that is kind of before it gets to a point of you know where people who, you know, perhaps are, are looking for a more straightforward experience would, would sign on, you know, would, would check out and say, all right, I'm, I'm done. Cause it is funny. Like, again, I, I find, I did find the movie funny for most sure. of the running time. Like it is trying to Especially be Especially the first act. Yes. A specific style yeah. of comedy. Like, again, it's a nightmarish, it's kind of a cringe comedy um, yeah. in a way. But I did find it effective. I mean, we've talked before how there were actually some some comedic moments in Midsommar. I think people didn't really understand how they were supposed to be reacting. But I think there are some moments where you can't help but laugh in that movie. And Aster isn't necessarily telling you not to do that. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I was going to say, I think one thing that the film does do nicely structurally is that it's a pretty well-segmented three acts in the film. You have everything that happens sort of in the first unnamed city. They filmed that, I believe, in Montreal. So we can call it Montreal <laughs> if you want to. Um, but in the first sort of act is this unnamed city where he's, you're getting to know who Bo is, maybe why he's afraid <laughs> of his mother um, and, and exploring his relationship with his mother. And then obviously not being able to travel home to visit her. And then the second act is with Amy Ryan and Nathan Lane's characters to the point where he sort of runs into the forest and has this experience in the forest outside of their house and then the third act is when he makes it back to is it wasserman town wasserman city i don't know i can't remember the exact name yeah it's it. the town that is named for his family it's it's like basically like a company town is how i took it because sure. his mother has started this huge conglomerate we don't even really know exactly like what the focus is of the the corporation it seems like the focus is everything right kind of everything like, kind of like everywhere. a procter yeah. and gamble type company that yeah. makes just like a little bit of everything yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So that's that's like the three act structure of the film. And I definitely would say up to the first two acts, I wasn't completely lost. There were some things that I didn't think 
like the there's a there's just a very outland outlandish dystopic nature of this sort of ruined city um but i also found that to be a really sort of um fun like the funniest el like parts of the film were in that and some of the camera work and some of the choices there yeah they're like cringe humor for sure but i think it's really coupled with some pretty effective stuff the second act i found the most engaging from a story perspective like this is where i thought like the film was getting really interesting i thought nathan lane's performance was really good especially from a supporting cast perspective and then i just think like some really weird choices were made not that he like runs into the woods and then has and is ultimately chased by someone from this household that we you know we can get into or whatever jeeves Jeeves, yeah, Jeeves is the, is the character's name. Dennis Didn't fully un, like. It, I had a friend who who saw this film last week describe it to me as didn't fully understand what was happening in the forest in terms of the play, but thought it was really great. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. That's how he described it. He described it to well, me. Well, I think if we, I mean, you know, if we want to get into, it, I think what it is 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 he's seeing like an alternative for how his life might proceed from this point if he wasn't so afraid of his own shadow, right? If he was more proactive and sure um you know and he wasn't he was the person maybe that he wants to be but that his mother has spent every waking moment seemingly like beating out of him so yeah maybe i didn't i didn't get that read and i've tried to like retroactively go back and, and try to piece together parts but like he has kids in in that narrative and i, I guess I, i'm i fail to see i understand that his like sort of fear of a lot of different things, but like, you know, getting married to Elaine or whatever this, this woman's name from when he was younger in these flashbacks and stuff and like having sex, et cetera, is obviously a huge part of the film. And maybe if he wasn't so afraid of his mother, he'd be able to do those things. And maybe, maybe you could get that way. It just seemed like a big stretch. I still enjoyed like the filmmaking of that though, to the point I wanted to make, but everything after that is like some really strange choices. There's some stuff that happens earlier in the second act at the house with the TV where I was like, what on earth is happening in this movie? And they do nothing with that in the rest of the film. And I was really confused about that. I understand yeah. that there's just so much going on that we're just moving on to the next thing. And we need to get to this third act because this is like the meat of the film. Like this is the resolution that we need of the movie because this is, this is why Bo is afraid. Like we have to dig into that. But I was just confused why so much stuff that felt ultimately unnecessary and unrelated, but these huge like mysterious question marks were just sort of left hanging out there for like after like five seconds of introduction. I thought it was just very strange choices. I wonder if maybe there's like, I mean, we know there's like an hour of the of this film on a cutting room floor somewhere. I wonder if that if some more of that is sort of explained in that. I don't think we need another hour of this movie though, to be clear. Uh, overall, I I sort of I would really hesitate to recommend this movie this movie to anyone unless I really knew their their film tastes pretty well and that I thought that they would like it. Like People at work after I saw this were asking me what I thought of it. And I'm like, it's it's a lot. Like, I don't know what else to tell you, except you're probably like my coworkers are not interested in this movie. <laughs> like that is definitely going to be the case for the most part. Like my more like casual movie going coworkers who like, you know, they either go see superhero movies in theaters or wait for them to come to Disney Plus and maybe they'll see the odd like blockbuster or random movie here and there. But you know, they're not really like sort of avid moviegoers like mm -hmm. uh like you or me or some of my other coworkers who are a little bit more into seeing everything. But yeah, it was, it was a lot. Joaquin Phoenix is a crazy performance. I don't really know how to feel about it because I feel like I'm so mixed on the movie. Um, but that's sort of, I mean, maybe that, that in itself is, is sort of a credit 
to him because he embodies the movie so well. It's kind of the same with Joker, right? Like, even though we have negative feelings about that movie that, you know, I think you have mixed feelings about the performance because of that, right? Like he's yeah. obviously, he embodies the film, right? So if you really dislike everything else in the film, it's kind of going to, you're going to be hard pressed to love Joaquin Phoenix's performance because he matches matches it so well. And that's just like maybe sort of the reality of him as an actor, which is, again, I think maybe a compliment to him. Scott, did you want to talk more about Joaquin Phoenix though, from your perspective as someone who enjoyed the film a lot more than I did? Sure. Uh, I mean, yeah, I think it's a successful performance. You know, I guess more recently we saw him than Joker. We saw him in Come On, Come On, yeah. right? Which mm-hmm. is kind of like my favorite mode that he does, right? Where he is, he actually can be very sort of warm and inviting in a way, um, I, you know, sort of reflective type performances that he gives in, in a movie like that and a movie like Her. Um, and I think he is using some of that like, you know, softness that he he can have in this movie, but he's dialing it up, obviously, to, you know, a pretty high degree because that's what the movie calls for. And because obviously this guy is not just, a, you know, sort of the, the gentle fatherly figure like uh, Johnny is in Come On, Come On. He is, you know, a deeply like anxious Beta person man, who actually yeah yeah exactly who has been stunted again by his his mother's every effort and mm-hmm. you know i think the movie does a really good job of putting you in his shoes right you know i think in a lesser movie you would be sitting around like okay come on man just like just suck it up and and do something about this um but i think the movie you know wants you to go on bo's journey with him and to understand why he is the way that he is and to empathize with him or sympathize with him at the very least. Um, And I found that I I thought it was successful doing that. I thought Phoenix was successful in portraying like just that all encompassing fear and anxiety that every single person is out to get you, that everyone is assuming the worst about you, that you have absolutely no control over your own fate. Um, and that people are, you know, are, are always trying to, are always blaming you for everything that's happening, basically. Um, everything is your fault. Uh, yeah, And, you know, Scott, you mentioned that, getting, I guess, into spoilers a little bit, you mentioned that TV moment, um, yeah. which, um, sure, I, I can definitely see how, at the end of the day, that might feel like, well, why was that in there? Because, you know, they set up a pretty big idea, right, that this, like, TV in the house can see depict the future right like there there's this channel that you know amy ryan tells him to go to and he's rewinding and fast forwarding he fast forwards it and we see a series of images that we all that we end up seeing each one of these images later in the film um they all come true i think if you know if if i'm being generous because i i i think i might agree that that part doesn't work as well but i'm being generous perhaps again this is just another example of the character and how he projects that he does not have any control over his own fate, right? Like here is a TV channel that is seemingly showing him everything that is going to happen. Like why, you know, how is he going to be able to change that or whatever? Um, He's not, or at least that's how he he feels in his own, own mind. Um, But it does seem like a big sort of, I don't know what the word for it is, but a big idea to set up and then, to not really 
do anything more with that other than of course of course again to show that yeah the images that he sees on the tv they do all happen like his you know it does depict the future in that way but um but yeah no i i think phoenix's performances the movie doesn't work without him i felt that the movie worked so i thought that his performance worked too yeah I mean, were there any elements, I guess, we're talking a lot about the first half here, but I think a lot of the, I think a lot of the performances sort of sold in the third act, right? When he's actually having these confrontations, spoilers, I guess, because um, it's hard not to talk about this, but when he makes his way to, you know, his namesake town and visits his sort of his mom's funeral and then has a confrontation with his mom, you know, I think that you have to, that's when he really has to sell the performance most of all, I think. Did, did you find that to be a successful sort of sequence? Because that's when the film starts to get I mean, particularly crazy, I think it's, it's fair to say. Yeah, no, I think he did because, you know, there are there are some revelations that if you think about them, it's like, well, maybe he should have figured this out, like, because he has all the pieces there in his mind that basically what's going on in the attic, right? Um, is kind of what I'm thinking of is maybe if sure. he thought about it, he could have figured that out. But I think you believe again that he never would have figured this out. This this isn't a possibility that he would have ever considered because you know of of what his mother has done to him, and and obviously the anger finally starts to to build up, or you know the pressure builds up on him to actually do something, and then he does do something for basically the first time in the movie. Um, and again, because I think the movie's done a good job and his, his performance has done a good job of putting you in his shoes and, um, you know, just showing what a pitiful life this character leads. Um, yeah, I'm not going to say you agree with his decision or whatever, but it's like, there is some sense of relief of like, well, he's finally, finally acted on, you know, what has probably been building up inside of him for the entire time. Yeah, namely strangling his mother. Yes. Yeah. Scott, the attic. I mean, on this, I know that we have other supporting actors and actresses maybe that we want to talk about, but you've brought the attic up. And so I supporting feel Supporting appendages that, also. To talk I feel about, like, we, yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah. I feel like I feel compelled that we have to talk about the attic now that you've brought it up. So the attic, which is sort of like the climactic, that sort of sequence with, you know, then with his mom shortly after. I mean, sort of is the climactic scenes of the movie. They sort of are the climactic scenes of the movie, I should say. And the sort of revelation of the discovery, again, we're talking full spoilers here. So if, if I guess maybe if you come this far, maybe it doesn't even matter because we spoiled so much for you. But sort of You've the revelation. You've seen it if you're listening to this. Like, let's be real. Yeah, fair. But to your point, like he should have been able to figure it out. And that namely is that he has a twin brother who is like decaying in the attic of this house. And also that his dad is a monster who is just a giant penis. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think isn't there there's some question, though, about like, what is what? Right. Like, could the dad be the person who's like decrepit sitting there? Right. Like, and his twin I don't brother is the clear. penis. Possibly. All right. I'll let you explain your take to this. Maybe you've got you. <laughs> yeah, you've I, I don't know. If, even I don't know if there's one. an explanation on that one. But again, it's not it's not clear. But yeah, like um, but yeah, you see you see an old decrepit person. Right. And then the lights go out kind of and then you see this giant penis 
huge um, huge monster yeah, sized monster. penis with like raised like i don't know like scissor arms what do you even describe it as not yeah scissors, they're like spider like blade arms, arms. Kind of they're like blade yeah. arms yeah yeah look it's it's you know it's a difficult thing to to make total sense of i mean obviously um there's a huge sort of psychosexual element to the whole movie right and um the fact that his mother has told him a story from his youth that um, his father his father yeah and people before ancestors before him had this heart murmur where like if they were to have sex they would die and in fact that is what happened to his father when they were conceiving Bo, yeah, um, that he died. And as a side note, uh, Zoe Lister Jones plays the young version of his mother. His mother um, yeah. Generally, I'm not a fan of her. The scene where she is actually telling Bo like the story of what you know what she says happened to his dad, I thought she was like captivating in that scene, like in the what he was doing with like the light and the shadows and like half her face like being in the dark, like that. That scene really worked for me, like the. The whole mm-hmm. story and her performance and everything was creepy um but um so she he's been told this story it has affected the way that you know he has lived his life he has you know thought about this one this girl that he met at a very young age elaine um and eventually um connects with her again at the house parker posey playing her and um you know, they are having sex and he's afraid that he's going to die. Um, but he doesn't, um, but she does. Um, but he, he doesn't. Um, and of course we get a very gruesome look at, um, the, the effect basically of having never had sex in his life on his anatomy. And it is, it's grotesque, right? But it's, you know, it adds to the visceral feel of the movie. So, you know, obviously, all of that is a huge element of the movie. I'm not sure exactly how to parse that with, you know, what the, the monster itself represents. Um, except that, you know, I guess, look, he, he his father is someone that he has always thought was dead. The, the you know, the, the penis is something that he has always, like, you Feared. know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and now here, now at the, the moment when he is finally sort of discovering what is going on, right? And that actually... Well, he's just had his lie. sexual awakening. Like, he yeah. literally had just had sex for the first time. That that part of it was a lie. And maybe he's also starting to put together that other parts of it are a lie. Sure. You know, he is confronted with these two lies sort of coming together in a way, right? His father existing, being alive, and, you know, him actually being able to have sex and not die what it means beyond that i'm not totally sure but you know and it's and it's sort of preceded by meeting this very strange man in the woods and having seen him earlier in the film in the second act Mm -hmm. outside of um nathan lane's and amy amy ryan's house at grayson rogers house that he's staying in and this strange man comes up to him saying that he knew his father like he's and that he's alive right so it's preceded with all this sort of mounting evidence as well as his sort of memories i guess the father stuff is not his memories but his brother like him having a brother is something a a memory that he's sort of starting to recall and again the other part the other part of that's you know the the sort of the punchline of the whole animated sequence is that 
his three sons, right, in the, the idealized narrative that plays out mm-hmm. are like he's telling them, you know, again, his beliefs about like, oh, you know, I can't have sex, whatever, I will die, whatever. And they're like, well, how are we here then? And yeah. it's like the light, he's that close to like, to figuring it Connecting out. And the in, the dots, sa- yeah. in the same way, he's that close to figuring out sort of the father thing, but it, he's just not quite there yet. Like this guy, I don't think this guy is just, I mean, this guy is not his father. I, I don't think, but um, yeah, there was a just, brief point in the film where I thought that he might be his father, but yeah, no, I don't think he is. Again, you have to ask the question about how much of this is just his anxiety projecting itself. Right. Like, again, I think that's one interpretation you can take, sure. especially the early sequences. Like, well, you know, is this like rampant crime and all this, you know, craziness go- actually going on in the streets outside his apartment? Or is this just a depiction of, you know, this is what it looks like to him because of his severe anxiety? Um, Maybe. Yeah. And the, of course, the third option perhaps is that, you know, it, it centers around the portion of the movie that we're talking about now where Patty Lapone emerges as his mother. She's alive they have a conversation and you can, I think there's, there is a, a, an interpretation to be had that, you know, you could say she orchestrated like almost everything that has happened to him in the movie, because we learn that Elaine was an employee of the company. We see all the pictures on the wall. We see that Nathan Lane's character was also an employee of the company. Um, Stephen and McKinney so Aaron Henderson, his therapist, Henderson, was an employee. Yes, of course, who more yeah. prominently actually emerges and, yeah. It, by the way, his face just the the creepy smile he had. He <laughs> he really nailed that. But um, but yeah. So you could you could argue too that his mother has um, has set up this series of trials for him, basically to to test him and to see you know, I guess how much is her love actually worth to him, right? Like, is he willing to go through all of this to get back home to her and what what you know is he ever actually going to do anything basically um and her her question is answered i guess because he eventually does act but um only after this very traumatic journey so so again there's a lot I guess of that's, diff- that's that's one of the questions that sort of lingers for me though is that what exactly was the point of his mother doing all these things because i mean i guess you could like if we're gonna if we're gonna do a leaps and bounds further you can say you know his mother hired his neighbor to steal his shit so he it would be difficult for him to go like that's a huge leap obviously but i think mm-hmm. in this sort of narrative sort of explanation that you're laying out i think you kind of have to assume that right maybe his anxiety is is projecting all this sort of crime and crazy stuff that's happening in the city like is this is there a naked guy with a knife really chasing after him in the city and stabbing him i don't know like he was stabbed what so, was his like, name what? birthday boy stab man or something yeah, like birthday that boy stab man. hilarious yeah. hilarious name yeah that sounds right yeah so, something something around that around that um flavor at the very least but yeah i think i think that you sort of um you have to sort of jump and, and leap to a bunch of different stuff which is fine that's that's okay to do in movies but i think it's it feels like it's a lot it's a lot there left to do and i think there still are some sort of inexplicable elements like like what's going on with the daughter and the second act drinking the paint stuff like that i have no idea what's going on with any of that well Um, yeah i think all of that is sure hers is a little extreme but again what makes that part of the movie so interesting right is that we now have other characters who are being shown to be afraid in their own way right to have their own sort of fear because 
they have had this traumatic experience where their son was killed in the war and um you know they have still his room is untouched they are sort of just you know dedicating that to him and then as a further layer it seems like they are now trying to make Bo their adopted son um, when he arrives at the home and obviously the daughter is going through that as well um and she is now seeing that you know she is not good enough for them or you know they're they're always haunted by the the son and they're now trying to bring him back they've brought in this stranger to replace him and she is even sleeping in her own bed right so she is yeah. going through some stuff and i guess because she is a moody emo teenager she, she you know it projects itself in drinking paint and in smoking this joint that is made of three things but we never actually find out what the three things are uh, which is kind of amusing but um that's yeah that's the way i interpret it is that's just you know a extreme manifestation of her her grief and and what she's going through with what she's what she's seeing from her parents the behavior she's seeing from her parents because everything in the movie is extreme right like it seems like everything is taken to sure the most extreme dimension that's just the the universe that aster creates and the universe perhaps within bo's head yeah i think it is interesting to talk about all these things retrospectively because what you're saying like seems like it could make sense but then when i actually like think about watching the film i'm not like i guess the experience of watching the film doesn't necessarily tie those things together to me but yeah just just how the experience goes sometimes are there any other supporting members of the cast that you want to talk about i mean we talked a little bit about parker posey about patty lapone amy ryan nathan lane is there anyone that jumps out that you want to give particular accolades to yeah, I mean, again, I think Amy Ryan and Nathan Lane are good because they are giving sort of the most Lynchian performances, I feel like, in the movie of like, they are presenting as like, idyllic, everything is kind of okay, right? Sure. We're just normal, you know, all-American couple and Nathan Lane is barbecuing in the backyard and, you know, they have these great jobs and everything. But there is just like something just slightly off you can't put yourself you can't put your finger exactly on what it is like again obviously you know about this experience they've had but you can't exactly put your finger on why something doesn't quite feel right with them and that's how he wants it i think and that's what makes the performances effective well, it's the it's the, in, it's the inverse of like the crime-ridden city right like it is yeah. this dystopic city going to this idyllic suburban household so it almost feels like it's you know part of a pair almost but yeah, but again, you just have these random moments or, you know, like, again, they have Jeeves just like hanging out in the, the yeah. backyard, um, who's like this extremely PTSD riddled soldier that their son served with. Um, what, do you, and, what do you make of the giant penis monster killing Jeeves? <laughs> I don't know that there's much, much to that. I mean, you know, maybe it's one symbol of ma masculine aggression devouring another one. Maybe that's the, the, the outcome there, but, um, but yeah, you know, again, it is all just like, there are just the, it, it's not as extreme, right? Like, I guess this is one segment where it's not quite as extreme to some degree, because it's not like the violence and everything that we see in the city, but there are still these like little things that are just like ratcheting up the anxiety still with Bo. Um, whether it's, you know, again, Jeeves hanging out in the backyard, whether it's the the untouched room of the son, whether it's the daughter making him smoke this joint, or whether it's just 
the way that Nathan Lane and Amy Ryan talk to each other. Um, sure. And the fact that everyone is just like popping antidepressants like they're candy the entire time too. Um, Nothing wrong so with I think that. So I think they gave great performances. I think they were really locked in. Same thing for Patti Lapone. I mean, you know, she she's a theater actress. She's known for her, you know, theatrical work. And she definitely gets to use that in her one sort of big scene at the end of the movie, mm-hmm. um, which I think works. Again, in, in this heightened universe that Astor has created, I'm not turned off by the theatricality of her performance there because you just, you know, I, I've, I've been I've gone with the movie at that point like we're so deep into it it's like sure yeah this why wouldn't she be acting like this yeah and i I think she also gets to sort of flex a more silent view of her you know theatrical skills in the very final scene of the film this sort of i think you already mentioned it briefly this sort of exaggerated show trial of of Bo's doing i think maybe we can almost sort of wrap the discussion up talking about the very end of the movie i think it makes sense too and I, I do think, uh, above all else, this, this scene might have the easiest read, at least for me personally, of everything that's, that's going on in the film. Obviously, we've talked about how Bo has sort of overcome his um, almost repressed nature, his 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 uh, inhibitions, so to speak. And he killed his mom. He had sex for the first time. Not in that order, obviously. But these things that he'd been fearing for this his entire life, I think pretty much, you know, yeah. more or less, definitely his entire adult life. He has acted upon those things. He has freed himself from the sort of the construct, maybe even mentally constructed prison, uh, if not mentally, then the constructed prison that his mother built for him and released himself. And then sort of this show trial at the end, the way I read it, Scott, correct me if you had a different read of it, is that it is, he, he sort of floats off in this boat and it sort of drifts off into the lake and he emerges in this sort of almost amphitheater, I guess is the best way yeah, to describe stadium, it. Yeah. This sort of stadium. And he is put on trial for his actions um, against his mother. I, I don't remember exactly what, basically everything that he's done, he's put on trial for. And this just feels like this person who, um, to go back sort of to the guilt element that you were talking about at the very beginning, even after having done all these things and releasing himself from this prison that he's been in for you know 30 plus years, he isn't able to sort of mentally forgive himself for what he's done. And he has projected um, in his subconscious or whatever, this idea that he is being put on trial for his actions against his crimes against his mother and is found guilty and is killed by his, by his sort of guilt over the whole thing. Scott, is that how you read it? Is it, am I oversimplifying it? No, I think that's, I mean, I, I think this trial is basically, what Bo was afraid of the entire time, sort of in its own way, because it is just a direct, it is directly Richard Kind, right? Playing the lawyer going Mm -hmm. through our close personal friend, Scott Richard Kind that we saw one time on the street. But like, again, this is what he is afraid of is like that somebody is just going to look at everything he's done in his life and take the worst possible read. Damn him to hell, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And say that all along you have been the problem. And, you know, even your seemingly what seemed to you like innocuous actions have had horrible effects and, and are all a result of your inherent selfishness and, you know, the fact that you don't care about your mother and blah, 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 blah. Again, worst possible read of all this. 
and yeah, like again, yeah. He and he asked for he asked for forgiveness from his mother in the scene too, I believe as well, mm-hmm. or like begs her forgiveness, and she doesn't respond. And um, yeah, it's it's almost it's just kind of an inevitable ending where he does the thing that you know maybe at one point would have freed him yeah. from this prison, which is kill his mother. But now it's gotten to such an extent that after all this time, the only way he can truly be free is if he is dead. And that's obviously the final image of the movie is him, him drowning. Right. Which is another like huge fear that he has throughout the movie of, of drowning. Yeah. I mean, even, even going back to the opening scene of the movie, I think evoking this sort of fear of being underwater. Um, The opening scene of the movie, of course, is his birth, but it's shot from a perspective of inside the womb, Mm -hmm. which is a real tone setter for the film. Yeah. But I think it does also evoke this sort of almost fear. It's almost like sort of like claustrophobic fear of being somewhere where you can't get out. You can't you can't breathe mm-hmm. kind of situation. So it all sort of comes full circle there. Yeah. And he he realized like even he, I think there's this really cool element, too, where there's this you had texted me about this, this sort of defense attorney who you know, gets thrown over the side and his face smashed in Midsommar style in this final scene. And I think that reads really well onto this explanation where you talk about how, you know, there are no excuses that can forgive him, that can get him to forgive himself for what he's done, right? And so this person who's trying, like this part of his subconscious that's trying to defend him is being, you know, actively suppressed and killed mm-hmm. by by the other part of him, this sort of very damning, very guilty part of him. And now, now that he yeah. is, yeah, and now that he has done something that, perhaps is actually condemnable, right? Which is to kill his mother. Um, you know, he now sees as this, this as being the time when he's going to pay for all the other things, which maybe aren't really that condemnable and that, you know, he's just been told that they are, or he's, he's been operating under the belief that they are. Um, because yeah, it's not, it's not the killing his mother really that condemns him in the end. It's these other sort of microaggressions, right? The, Sure. allowing standing by while his friends went through his mom's underwear or whatever at the house and um just other random moments of passivity again it all comes back to his passivity and the fact that if he had stepped in and just been proactive in any of these situations then mm-hmm. um, he you know nothing would have things happened, might have been but, different things yeah. might have been different and he and Bo may even be able to understand that but it's like his mother's you know impact on him has almost a physical you know effect where he can't he just physically cannot do like you see this most i think when he is at nathan lane's house right and he he's like i have to leave today i have to leave today you know you have to take me home today and nathan lane's like oh i got emergency surgery blah 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 blah. and they're having that conversation and they're just like looking at each other and you can just tell that Bo is just like about to implode basically because he knows he has to get home today, but yeah. he just cannot get to that Step point up. where he, yeah. he is like, yeah. no, you are going to do this. You are going to take me, screw the surgery, whatever. He just has to, he just says, okay. And, you know, yeah. and again, it's another moment of passivity. For sure. All right, Scott, unless there's anything else that you want to point out here, any other things you want to talk about, I think favorite scene or moment is where we're headed, but is, is there anything else you'd like to discuss? 
I mean, maybe as a segue to favorite scene or moment, because there's sure. a lot of things we could discuss, obviously, about this film. But um, Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, There are a couple of needle drops in this movie, which are pretty incredible. Um, one of them is very brief when he is at Nathan Lane and Amy Ryan's house. And it's just one of those moments of like, I cannot believe this song is appearing in this film. And it's Vanessa Carlton's A Thousand Miles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> just for like, a, you hear it for about 10 seconds when they're all just kind of like hanging out in the living room, um, which cracked me up. Just like a moment of dissonance, right? Of like, again, I can't believe this song is yeah. in this movie. But the other one is probably, I mean, you know, the scene of the movie quite possibly, which is when he and Parker Posey sleep together. And she puts on Always Be My Baby, Mariah Carey twice in a way because she starts the song they get into it and she's like oh I'm gonna start it over now um and everything about that scene is just like perfect honestly again the song choice the like tension that is building right because you think you know you you still kind of wonder right if at this point you're not you're not totally sure whether um his mother's predictions his mother's words are actually going to come true like is he actually going to die when you know when he finishes um and he doesn't so there's that tension element of it and then you know just the holding there on Bo's face while he's like all the coming you know the relief and the you know com competing emotions that he's feeling in that moment of realizing he's been lied to and um and then like it holds on it for a while and then just the cut back to to her face dead like rigid like yeah, ri yeah rigor mortis fully set in again remember. it's it's the perfect moment of like the nightmarish part and the co comedic part inter intersecting because it is funny like honestly it is funny the way that it is shot again that cut in particular it's it's obviously deliberately yeah and it kind of evokes life. almost the sort of that a similar although very different scene in midsummer that you were sort of alluding to earlier yeah. where people didn't really know how to react to it. My, my theater reacted fine to that scene. I mean, you're supposed to laugh, right? Like you're like, you are supposed to think it's funny. Um, but yeah. yeah. Like the woman comes and pushes his buttocks. Like, yeah. How can you not think that that's deliberately funny? Anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's my favorite scene. It is kind of, you know, there, there's a lot of, you know, standout sequences in the movie, but it is kind of like the showstopper. I feel like that most people are going to come away talking about. I think that scene, I think another showstopper, I was going to be interested in say something besides this, although I, I do think sort of the pseudo animated or like mix of animation and live action that takes place in, in this sort of dream memory play that happens in the forest, this sort of meta narrative of the film about what you described it as, what Bo's life would be like if he could just simply stand up for himself and not be so afraid. Mm -hmm of his mother. I think that's like a pretty show stopping scene too, to sort of end the second act right before things get, you know, well, I guess that's not the last scene in the second act. There is another scene right after that with that involves Jeeves uh, sort of attacking the, the theater camp, which is kind of funny, but the animation is really cool. Like, well, that's what I was going to say. I think, I think yeah. that's what makes it such a, a show stopping element is that it is so different than everything else. And it's really, it's really well done. I think overall, if that's not, I think it's sort of, that's one of my favorite scenes of the film. The other one probably would be going back to act one when he's trying to buy water because he's supposed to take his new experimental antidepressant yes. with, with water. There's everything that happens. <laughs> when he in that Googles. Absolutely yeah. nuts. Yeah. He Googles cause he takes it without water and then he starts freaking out cause he was told never to take it without water. And he Googles like 
you know, the name of the medicine taken with no water. And the first thing that yeah. comes up is like somebody's obituary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But what's so funny, I mean, I guess it, it might have been a different pill, but he's like popping a pill the day before, like sort of at the beginning of the movie, in which I can only assume was the same medication and he did not take it with water. Yeah. So I think it adds an element of like, oh, he's only now thinking about this, even though if he would just stop and think that he took this yesterday without water, it wouldn't be a big deal. But, but thinking about whole, it is the problem. Yeah, exa 100%. Exactly. Yeah. And but then what he like sort of the craziness that ensues from him trying to cross the street to this um, convenience store and buy a bottle of water is hilarious. And there's this sort of anxious panning back and forth um, when he's in the convenience store and then the sort of irate convenience store owner who's told him he like stops paying like five cents short of the cost of the water and he said he's going to call the police even though it was like a dollar 70 pretty the hilarious tracking, stuff. the tracking shot for just following him across the street when he runs sure. across the street and like you know there's just all this crazy stuff going on there's people yeah, yeah, yeah. chasing after him and everything uh that's sort of like the highest level of, yeah for me that was sort of the scene with the highest level of like theatrical filmmaking craft. I mean, there's other elements of craft all, all over the film, including similar similar styles. But for me, that sort of captures a lot of the craft of the film sort of in one go. And um, how, how sort of act one ends is equally outrageous as naked stabby man or whatever his name was is, attacks him as well. Stabbing him but, in the hand. That was brutal watching yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, Scott, out of 10, what are you giving Bo is Afraid? 8.8. .8. It was an excellent film. I really enjoyed it um, as much as you can enjoy this sort of thing. And again, extremely well crafted, just furthers Ari Aster's reputation as a, you know, one of our finest auteurs. And I, you know, I'm going to look forward to his next film without reservation, unless he's going to make a Marvel movie or something, but I don't think that's ever going to happen. So 8.8. Oh, no. .8. You've nailed your <laughs> cross now. His next film is yeah. going to be some like live action Disney remake or something like that. Um, he should be the one doing the Haunted Mansion remake, I think. That, or, uh, maybe. Yeah, he I guess it was a remake. If but. he was announced to do a Haunted Mansion remake, would you be excited? I mean, if he has to be attached to something Disney-wise, I think like that would be one of the better options. What if he directed a Fast and Furious movie? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Consider, considering what he seems to feel about family from all three of these films, I think that would be a very interesting uh franchise for him to enter but maybe not yeah, interesting think, in a good way i think he and vin might butt heads a little bit on their ideas of family yeah. i bet vince if vin saw this movie he might be calling up ari be like i'm not sure you understand what family is ari if vin diesel saw this movie i think he literally might explode but yeah <laughs> yeah maybe anyway uh yeah 8.8 .8 from you it's going to be a 7.3 for me a film i respect and understand uh, look, I, I think that we made a lot of sense of the film here on this podcast, but I don't know if the experience of watching the film is, gave me quite the same sense. Maybe um, you should rewatch it. And, and I was see. well, I was about to follow up and say I will definitely not be rewatching the movie, Scott. So that will not be happening. Um, definitely higher chance of me revisiting than some are before revisiting this movie. I'll say that much. Seems but overall, you know, that's that's a choice. That's a choice you've made. I look forward to hearing about how the sixth time is for you whenever that comes around. So. Yeah, 7.3 for me, 8.8 .8 for you. That should do it for our discussion of Bo is Afraid. We do have some stuff in part two to talk about. We'll be, we'll be discussing some news related to Charlie XCX joining the cast of an upcoming film, as well as some casting news about Chloe Zhao's upcoming Dracula movie. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. <laughs>
Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. As we mentioned before the break, we have a couple bit of news related to casting. One about Charlie XCX, which we'll get to in a minute. But first, we have some news about Chloe Zhao's upcoming Dracula film. I think we might have talked about the announcement that Chloe Zhao would be directing a Dracula movie, maybe at some point a while back on the podcast post-Eternals. She's obviously gone quiet after, I think, what is widely considered to be one of the biggest failures in the MCU and a pretty remarkable follow-up to the Best Picture winning Nomadland. But it seems like she's going to be getting back in the saddle and have a little, probably a little bit more creative control and do something a little bit more thematically interesting to her with her upcoming Dracula film. It's going to be starring Robert Pattinson. That's sort of the big news, I think, who is a, a fan of bats and, and vampires. I think it's fair to say he has a long track record uh, as being Batman or vampire men in his filmmaking career. So this is like his third or fourth time playing a bat or a Dracula. So congrats to him. Very exciting pairing. I mean, the guy has so much on his plate, I feel like. I mean, we can only assume that Batman 2 is coming soon. Like he's going to be filming that at some point with Matt Reeves. He has, is it Mickey Seven? Is that what it's called? The Bong Bong Joon-ho film. I think he might have had a couple other things too that we've talked about on the podcast recently, but now this as well. To sort of spit on this, because there's a lot of directing moves. I mean, we talked briefly about Renfield. Is he an Oppenheimer? Maybe. Everyone's an Oppenheimer. If you ask me if he's an Oppenheimer, I would just say He could be in it for like one minute, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't specifically remember some casting news around him and Oppenheimer, but it's possible. It's definitely possible. Okay. But he's going to be the lead. He's going to be playing Dracula. He's going to be playing a version of Dracula that wakes up many, many, many years in the future. So there's going to be a lot of sort of tech um, dystopia kind of vibes around being an outsider. I don't know. I was reading a little bit about this. Um, being on the fringes of society is is cited to be one of the key themes of of the film. It's hard to say whether this is going to be part of this sort of monster verse. It, it's very loosey goosey. It feels like at Universal with the monster movies. They had something like Invisible Man with Elizabeth Moss back right before the pandemic in 2020. But then their sort of next monster movie that they've done, to the best of my knowledge, correct me if I'm wrong, Scott, is Renfield, which came out last week, which is a completely different vibe, completely different aim, not really exploring anything thematically interesting from my perspective, at least in the film. Yeah. And. They've announced a bunch of other projects. I think that might be more in the vein of what Lee Whannell did with Invisible Man. And I think that this Chloe Zhao Dracula project will be in, in of that sort of more dramatic vein, more, more thriller vein. I don't know if it'll actually be a thriller. But it's interesting to see Pattinson cast in this. I think it's really cool to see him work with a director like Chloe Zhao. He always seems to be someone who's interested in working with prestige directors that he hasn't worked with before. So it's kind of like a trend continuing, I think, here. He's working with Bong Joon-ho next. He's got Chloe Zhao on the horizon. Um, I think this is really cool casting. What do you think, Scott? Yeah, I mean, look, I love both of these, the work of both of these people individually. So it that makes it an interesting pairing. Um, I admit I am still somewhat skeptical about Chloe Zhao doing things that you would describe as genre films because I just don't know that that's where her strengths lie. Um, sure. You know, again, her 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 first three films, Nomadlands, uh, The Writer, and Songs My Brothers Taught Me, are all just these sort of very plotless, um, slice of life type movies. Yeah. Now you mentioned, you know, that this movie might be about a Dracula on the fringes of society, right? Like, I think that is one thing she does well is depict 
people and groups of people on the fringes of society um again with her first three films um so maybe that's sort of going to be her angle on this to how she's you know going to make it make it work but you know eternals obviously i think was a big old mess um i would like to say that she's completely innocent in that the reality she's probably not but um again i think it doesn't have anything to do with her filmmaking abilities because we know um what she can do but you know not everyone can be a versatile filmmaker um and i just hope that um the eternals mess was is not indicative of a larger issue for her in you know making films that have more of a plot more you know genre trappings um in them because i am rooting very much for her and everything that she does but yeah like look it's uh it's a cool setup it's a cool pairing um it'll just we'll just have to to see how it plays out yeah it'll be interesting to see as we learn more it seems like it's still i don't want to say in the early stages but because there's been very little news about this film i have to think that some things are still coming together (laughs) I think elements of it. I don't, I don't know if it's filming yet or, or what the deal is. If so, then they've kept this thing extremely under wraps. So congrats to them, I guess, on keeping everything quiet. But yeah, I think we'll probably see some more news on this in the coming weeks now that we have the news that Pattinson will be starring in the film. It sounds like it'll be casting up. And I think a lot of people will be interested in you know, whether what direction Zhao goes, I think, is another question because she's not typically working with big-name actors. Maybe she has one big-name actor in a movie like Nomadland has Francis McDormand, but then it basically has unknowns to literal just like people that that they that she picked up off of you know the communities that she's working on in those movies so very interesting to see how the rest of the cast develops out of that but we'll keep an eye on it scott charlie xcx has joined the cast of, of a film that is related to the movie we talked about last week how to blow up a pipeline and so i'll let you talk a little bit about that sure yeah daniel it's related because daniel goldhaber who directed that film how to blow up a pipeline that we were both huge fans of um he is going to direct this film for legendary it is um a reimagining of a horror film from the 70s called faces of death i don't really know too much about this movie um but it appears like it was sort of a found footage and a very early sort of found footage type film um again from back in the 70s um that was kind of a cult phenomenon Goldhaber is going to be doing a reimagining of that. As I said, already cast in the film were Barbie Ferreira, obviously of Euphoria fame, most uh, most notably. Um, not going to be in Euphoria going forward, but um, you know, was in Euphoria, was in Nope last year very briefly, and uh, she's starring alongside Dakray Mo- Montgomery, who um, people may know from Stranger Things or. Um, from the Power Rangers film where he played the Red Ranger. I think those are probably his his biggest roles. But anyway, as you said, Scott, Charlie XCX joining the cast. Charlie XCX, of course, the indie pop star, not has not made her feature film debut. There was a documentary a couple of years ago about her process of making um, her album, How I'm Feeling Now, during the pandemic, um, which was an interesting watch. I've been a fan for of Charlie XCX for a very long time, for uh, over 10 years now at this point. Um, and um, it's been a lot of fun watching her um, ascend to the point now where I think she is, you know, 
one of the three or four biggest names in like that indie female centric pop genre, you know, along with people like Lana Del Rey and Lord and um, Carly Rae Jepsen, artists like that. She's, she's right up there with all of them. But um, if you know anything about her, if you've ever seen her perform or anything, she is not lacking in personality. I think it is definitely one of the things that has gotten her to where she is in her career is her stage presence, her attitude, her personality. She is a character for sure. And so that's why I think absolutely like it, it makes a lot of sense um, to to see her starring in a feature film or I mean, not starring perhaps, but at least having a supporting role here in this um, horror film that's coming out. She has dabbled with horror a little bit like on in her music, like her last album um, Crash had some like horror sort of vibes to it at times. Um, and look, you know, I was I was more shocked by the news that Rina Sawayama, you know, another pop star in the same sphere as Charlie XCX. In fact, they have a song together. But I was more shocked with the news that she was going to be in John Wick 4. And she knocked it out of the park, um, as we talked about. With Charlie, again, I think something like this was always in the cards, perhaps. And so I have a lot of reason to believe that um, that this, this could work. This could be great. Um, I think I would compare her to like a in terms of her personality, like a Rachel Sennett type, I could definitely see her doing like a similar thing to what Rachel Sennett did in Bodies, Bodies, Bodies last year. Um, but we'll see. I'm very excited because um, I'm such a huge fan of her. So I'm very excited to see her in a film. If it doesn't work out, that's fine. She's still a very, very talented musician and will continue to have a lot of success there, I'm sure. I was seeing some takes the other day that Rina Sawayama bad in John Wick 4. Who on couldn't earth say, was saying that? Couldn't say I agreed with that. I don't remember. I, look, I, I yeah, scroll past I, so many bad takes on Twitter at this point, Scott. I that is cap. Them. That is major cap right there. <laughs> oh man, look at you. So woke. Where are all these uh where 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 are all these Gen Z phrases coming from now? You're gonna add <laughs> us on the podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah, sorry. look, Charlie XCX, I'll take your word for it. I'll, I'll be excited for it. But I mean, I think just just the reminder that the sort of Daniel Goldhaber's next project is Faces of Death, which is a film I'm not familiar with, but I'm certainly interested in what he's going to be doing next after How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Yeah, I'm very intrigued where this goes and what spin it's going to be. I think it's it. My understanding, just reading into it a little bit, it's not going to be a. It's not. It's going to be sort of a um, a bit of a reimagining as well. Maybe it'll keep the same structure as Faces of Death, but it's going to be updated to be more modern, which I think is probably necessary for something like that and bringing it into it's, a 2023, 2024 environment. It definitely seems like he's kind of a Gen Z voice um, in a way. Like um, his first Maybe. film was called Cam and was about webcamming, which again, like kind of um, very of the moment. Um, and then, mm -hmm. you know, obviously uh, How to Blow Up a Pipeline is touching on, you know, climate change anxiety today with a cast of um, pretty much universally young people. People younger Gen than Z. us. Yeah. yeah. Gen Z people. Um, and so I think he could definitely, he may, he's maybe definitely trying to, you know, cement himself as sort of a voice in that sphere. Cause you know, Charlie XCX, I think would be associated with, with that as well. well. I think that's cool. I think that's really awesome. And I'm excited for that when that does come around. Yeah. All right, Scott, I think that should just about do it for episode 233 of some like it's got any other parting thoughts to leave us with today. 
No, uh, it's been a good April um, as far as movies go. Again, we talked about two bangers in a row here, in my opinion. And uh, I am hoping for possibly two bangers next weekend um, with um, the movie we're going to be talking about. Um, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. And um, Kelly Reichert showing up is also coming out. Um, and well, for me, at least, uh, I think it's already been out in New York and L.A. Of course, Scott, you saw it last year um, at the New York Film Festival. Um, yeah, I like I'm finally going to get to see it though. I'm very excited. Um, I was just listening to Kelly Reichert's interview on with Mark Maron on WTF, and honestly, might be one of my favorite episodes of WTF. Might be one of the most interesting interviews that Maron has done. I highly recommend if you are interested in how movies get made at all, listening to that interview because the story of her sort of getting to where she is now as as a you know big time name in the world of American independent film um, is a very fascinating one. It involves a lot of, you know, sleeping on floors and apartments with random bands and um, getting told by studios that they don't make women's films and all this sort of stuff. So I think all that is going to be really interesting context for showing up for me, considering that it seems like a lot of this movie is about the creation of art um so knowing sort of about her journey i think it might add a layer to to this movie but yeah that's what's coming up i think it's gonna add a layer to this movie scott because i think when you watch this movie you're gonna think that this is about this is a semi-autobiographical film about kelly reichert i think that's sure. what's gonna add something to it but I'm yeah sure that's curious to hear your thoughts on it uh did you ever get get one fine morning in I did, but it, it was at a time, I think it was last month and I, when I was traveling a lot or something, like I, I just, I never really got around to seeing it, but I still want to. That's Mia Hansen Love's last film. Yeah, you should, uh, you should check that out. That's another one from the film festival last year that mm -hmm. recently got released that I was a big, yeah. that I, I like that one even more probably than, than showing up, but very curious to hear what you have to say. And you're right. Yeah. We will be talking about, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret next week. But uh, I guess we can wrap things up at this point. Where can people find you on socials? I'm at Scarby Den on all platforms. And you can find me at, at Shelton2013 on Twitter, Serialized Letterbox. I will say, Scott, actually, before I do wrap up, I, did, I finally saw Puss in Boots The Last Wish um, a couple nights ago. I, I loved it. it great, great animated film. So you're really you're time. buying into the people who have it in like the top fifty highest rated movies on Letterbox. Then <laughs> I did see that it was like a hundred and one on Letterbox or whatever, yeah. whatever, whatever its current ranking is in movies of all time. Look, I wouldn't put it there, Scott. But what I will say is that I think people who were enamored by the by the sort of innovative animation of a film like Spider Man into the Spider Verse, you should check out Puss in Boots because from just from a purely animation perspective, it's doing something a little bit different. Um, and I I'm thought sure that was really great. cool. I'll never know, but I'm sure it's great. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, <laughs> I think that that's disappointing, but I understand. Look, it, it's also it's not as emotionally affecting as Spider Verse. The film is not as good as Into the Spider Verse, but I did find it to be a, a rewarding watch, and I could see myself watching it again in the future. And this is someone who's only seen the first two Shrek movies and I haven't seen any of the Puss, the other Puss in Boots movie, whatever, whatever, whatever. Like I still enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Heartwarming film. Florence Pugh Scott is in this film as Goldie yeah. plays plays a character named Goldilocks. You can use your imagination what that's based off of. Hilarious. Sure. She's so funny. Uh, Mama Bear with her is Olivia Coleman. Everyone's cooking in this film, Scott. Love that. Yeah. Um, really great stuff. I think is it um Ray Winstone is Papa Bear as well, which is pretty funny. Okay. They uh, sure. leaned into the the camp, the British camp, I'll say, 
with those sure. characters. And and John Mulaney is the villain in the film, which is, is. Hol- hilarious. Um, great time. Would recommend the film for sure. And now we can say that will do it. <laughs> I think. Don't forget to check out our podcast on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash media plug pods. If you can support us over there, we'd appreciate that. But if not, that's okay. You can still find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever else you listen to your podcast. We'd appreciate if you rated, reviewed, subscribed, shared, all that jazz so we continue to reach a broader audience. And finally, we really appreciate all of you for taking time to listen to us chat about Bo is Afraid. God bless your heart for listening to us talk about that movie. We'll be back next week with a review of the Judy Bloom adaptation, Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret. We hope you'll join us for that next week. But until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.